0: Well, I think, everybody, we can start. Um, good afternoon, and thank you for coming along to what I understand is the first of this series of Gulp lectures this, at, at Bath this year. Is, is my voice projecting to the back? You can all hear. OK, very good. Um, I think this slide identifies me. I work in the Sport and Exercise Science Group uh, in the School for Health at the university here, but I also run a sports consultancy business, and I have consulted into... Um, Southampton Football Club in in 2006, so I carry a kind of academic background and a commercial background, which leads me to a a very, very nice opportunity to make a plug. Uh, This is my book. What I'll be talking about this evening is extracted in part from the book, but in the book I cover a great deal more about the popular science of football. Now my publisher, since this is an educational establishment, encourages it uh, to be sold at a very heavy discount. So if anyone's interested in coming along, I'd be very, very happy to sell them a copy. And after that disgraceful commercial interlude, we can get down to the uh, the business in hand for this afternoon. I'll just run briefly through what I intend to talk about today. I'll talk about an interesting history of the science of ball flight. It's not well known, and I think it's particularly interesting when you understand the personalities and the subjects involved. I'll then go on to say that spin in a a swerving free kick is at the heart of everything. And I'll talk about spin uh, broadly. I'll talk about the basic aerodynamics of ball flight. And I'll say in a research context how we measure and model uh, a free kick in practice. Then I'll move on to look at the category of free kickers that we see in action today. They divide nicely into groups. Some of them are expert side spin kickers. There are a few who've got very advanced technique in a sense, people like David Beckham, and they can deliver a bit of topspin in their free kicks. And I'll show some interesting historical video uh, filmed in the 70s, uh, which gives a clear picture of what came to be called the donkey kick, the ultimate topspin free kick of all time. I'll then move on to uh, the generation after Beckham are there people around nowadays who are doing intriguing things and different things in taking free kicks? And I'll hope to convince you that there are... We'll talk about this rather strange uh, object or performance which has come to be called the knuckleball. And finally, I'll draw it all together, I hope, with some conclusions. Well, anyway, let's start at the root of what we're thinking about this afternoon. This is a classic free kick... And it's taken with none of the clutter of a defensive wall. If you look at the flight of that ball, the temptation strongly is to believe that it behaves so perfectly and in such an orderly fashion, it must be possible to account for what's going on scientifically. And that's the challenge for me today, to unlock, I hope, the secrets of a swerving free kick. Just note in passing, these these are professional footballers, by the way, um, there is no defensive wall and yet even though that goalkeeper can see the free kick from the instant the ball is struck, he only just about gets across in time to make a save. So with the right hands a swerving free kick is a very, very effective weapon indeed. Well, let's look at the history. There are three key players separated by about 150 years in the development of the science of spin in sport. And the first was the German physicist, Magnus. Now, a long time ago, 150 years ago, Magnus studied the flow of air across the surface of a rotating cylinder. And what Magnus was able to measure was the force that was produced on the cylinder when the cylinder spun. And if the cylinder spins with (coughs) backspin, the force is upwards. If the cylinder was spun with topspin in the opposite direction the force reversed. And this was a kind of scientific curiosity and it lay in the scientific literature for nearly 50 years. And then along comes this eminent Victorian scientist and mathematician, a Scotsman, P.G. Tate. Um, Tate was a great scientist but also fascinated by the sport of golf. And what Tate wanted to do was to explain why it's possible to hit a golf ball such a long way and at the same time make it fly in the air for such a relatively long period of time. Now, unwittingly, Tate reinvented Magnus's work. And what Tate showed was that if a golf ball is speeding through the air and it rotates with backspin, it will experience a vertical force. And, of course, in a golf drive, it's the fact that the ball is effectively weightless for most of the portion of the drive that uh, makes the ball travel such a long way and fly for such a long time? Well, I'll summarise quickly um, the three forces that we need to think about if you want to understand why a ball moves in a particular way when it spins. It's spinning about this horizontal axis. It's moving forward in the direction I've shown with some velocity. It has a weight caused by gravity. The weight of every single sports ball is very carefully controlled. It's a given, and we can do nothing about it. This is the second force. It's the drag force. And it's caused by the fact that when a ball moves through the air, it's moving through a viscous fluid. It experiences friction, so it slows down. And finally, here's that intriguing force that Tate and Magnus studied. Um, We find that that force, in fact, is interesting in terms of its direction. It's always at right angles to the velocity and the spin axis. So if the ball rotates with backspin, the Magnus force will be upward. If it rotates with top spin, it will be downward. Now, I've shown two important numbers in red. We call these CD and CS the drag coefficient and the spin coefficient. And these are very, very important numbers indeed. If you want to understand the flight of a golf ball, a soccer ball, any kind of ball you care to choose, you must know the values of these numbers with precision, and I'll describe how we get at these later in the presentation. Well, there were three key individuals in this uh, history, and the final individual was the person who first applied spin to the context of a free kick, and this was the very great Brazilian midfielder, Edidi. He played in the 1950s for Brazil. Played with extreme distinction... ...in the World Cups of 1958 and 1962. And echoed back into Europe, we began to read in the 50s... uh, ...strange accounts of the amazing thing that this player was able to do with the ball. Now, he spun the ball by kicking it with the outside of his foot. And effectively, what he did was to rediscover in an intuitive way... ...what Tate and Magnus had described carefully in a scientific context... And this is what Didi realised. If you kick the ball, and I'm aiming the ball through the screen as you're looking at it, if you kick it so that your foot contact is underneath the ball, you'll spin it about a horizontal axis, you'll produce backspin, and as Tate showed, the ball will rise. However, if you kick the ball progressively more to the side, what you do is incline the spin axis. And in this case, the Magnus force is partially upward, and partially to the side. And then finally, if you stroke the ball exactly on its side, you'll produce perfect sidespin. Now, Didi knew nothing, I'm sure, about the work of um, Tate and Magnus. He derived all this intuitively and by intensive practice, as most of the great free kickers tend to do today. Of course, if you're very good, if you're an expert like Beckham, you might manage to tilt the axis beyond the vertical. And if you do, you make the ball rotate with a topspin. And in this case, the Magnus force is pointing to the side, but also pointing down. And that means that the ball will both swerve and dip. And that's very, very disconcerting for a goalkeeper. So that's the brief history. If you disbelieve those kind of um, tabletop accounts of what's happening, you can take a ball into a lab, you can make a primitive ball launcher you can do it by spinning two wheels so that in spinning, the ball is drawn through and projected forward. And if you make, for example, this wheel spin more quickly than this one, you can induce side spin, and you can produce something which has got A, reproducibility, and B, all of the characteristics of the swerving free kick I showed at the start. So that's a brief historical background. In summary... If you want to successfully convert a free kick, not that the ball should be kicked fast, but really it should be capable of being kicked fast. And secondly, you should kick it with spin. Now let me try to interpret those remarks in a way which neither Tate nor Magnus nor certainly Didi would have understood. And this is the interpretation in in terms of present-day aerodynamics. This is a ball that's moving along. It's actually static in a wind tunnel, but we assume it's moving from left to right. Air is flowing over the ball from right to left. And some smoke has been induced into the wind tunnel to produce a kind of telltale. Now, this ball is moving slowly, and since a sphere isn't a very good aerodynamic shape, the flow breaks away at the top and bottom surface. It produces a very extensive volume of turbulence downstream and turbulence is the agency that causes drag. (coughs) We describe that ball as laminar and we say that it's in a, a regime where it's experiencing a very high drag force. Now if you speed the ball up, a very interesting thing happens. This turbulence here begins to encroach into a very thin layer in contact with the surface of the ball, a very thin layer indeed called the boundary layer. And surprisingly, when that happens, it encourages the flow to stick to the ball once more. These transition points move around the surface of the ball and as a consequence, this volume of turbulence downstream of the ball is reduced and the drag drops considerably. So if we reach this transition, the ball moves much more freely. We call that turbulent, the the turbulent behaviour and really we we mean turbulence in the boundary layer. We say the boundary layer has been tripped and it's easy to kick the ball about. And the transition point, interestingly, for a football, this transition occurs at about 15 miles an hour. And most of the actions in football, fortunately, take place above that speed. Kick a ball, you throw a ball, you pass a ball and so on. You're always playing in this region of low drag. And it wasn't known for many years that the surface imperfection ...that trips the boundary layer is in fact the stitching on the panels on the surface of the ball. And it's quite accidental that footballs have been made with this property from time immemorial. Well, what happens when the ball spins? Here's a spinning ball. It's moving in the same direction. In this case, the ball's rotating with backspin... ...and you can see this part of the surface is rotating in the same direction as the flow... And this part of the surface is rotating against the flow. Now, when this happens, these transition points move around the surface. And separation is delayed here. It occurs earlier here. And if you do the mathematics, what you find is that there is a pressure differential set up across the ball. And, in fact, the pressure over the lower half is greater than the pressure over the upper half and that's the origin of the Magnus force. And you can see, in fact, even though this is a, a very low spinning ball, the wake is deflected downward, which indicates that that ball is rising. Now, that was broadly the way in which we had to speak about uh, these effects. And then a very interesting um, aerodynamic engineer, a colleague of mine from Japan, produced a beautiful series of... Um, ...experimental measurements that showed these visualisation effects for flow in real life. So here's a a footballer who comes steaming out of this this cloud of vapour and and kicks the ball. What could be going on? Here the ball is kicked at full speed. It's kicked past a darkened display so that we can take high-speed photographs later. And if you look closely, this goalkeeper, who's, who's not very amused... The goalkeeper is wearing a mask and gloves. And the compound that's been applied to the surface of the ball actually isn't a very pleasant one, but it has the property that it displaces clouds of vapour. And so when the ball moves along, it produces a condensation trail almost like an aircraft. Well, that's the humorous shot. Here's a quick shot of the high-speed performance. And we're looking at a very high-speed video of the ball the ball is trailing its own signature and it's doing this it in real life and not in a wind tunnel. So let's look quickly at some of the effects that I described statically a moment ago. Here's a ball which is laminar. It's moving in this low-speed regime corresponding to a high drag and you can see, as we saw a second ago, separation is occurring at the top and bottom surface. Let's speed the ball up, kick it faster... And you can see, whoops, you can see that separation is now occurring further towards the rear of the ball. And if you looked at the volume of the turbulent weight behind this particular ball at the top, you can see by comparison, this is much reduced compared with that. And finally, we spin the ball. And there you see the separation points moving around the surface. They move uh, more to the rear at that point when the ball spins, and they move more to the front in this case. The wake is downward displaced. The ball is rising, and that's the origin of the Magnus Force. And I think that's a very striking and original series of photographs of this aerodynamic effect actually occurring for a football. Well, we mustn't lose sight of the, um, the point I made at the start If you want to understand it, you have to find the values of these two numbers, CD and CS. There are two ways to do it. You can use a static ball in a wind tunnel, you can blow a a stream of air across its surface and you can measure the forces, or you can do what we saw a moment ago. You can use a football kicked or launched in real life and you can obtain the values of these numbers by measuring the trajectory in practice using digital video. So, let's see how we measure and model a free kick. Well, this is our own ball launcher in action. It's not the primitive object I showed at the start. It's programmable. You can launch a ball at any spin, any speed, any angle and direction you wish. Now, this is interesting video in the sense that it's clean and it's very clear. But if you, do, if you were to do measurements on this video as it stands, the numbers that you'd obtain would be meaningless and that's because we wouldn't be talking about a calibrated uh, ball flight in any sense of the word. So what we must do is arrange to do our experiments in a calibrated volume. And to do this at at Bath, what we use is this unusual object. It's a pole which is 9 metres high, and along the uh, pole itself we place markers at extremely precisely defined intervals. And then what we do... We move this pole, photographing it in each position around a carefully marked-out floor plan. And so what we produce is a calibrated volume where those points of intersection, if you like the X, the Y, and the Z values of those points of intersection, we know with absolute precision. Then we come along and do an experiment. You kick a ball, you throw it, um, launch it with a launcher, whatever you wish, and this time we photograph the flight of the ball, with two fast digital cameras. And we arrange to incline them at an angle. So, in fact, the cameras, rather like our human vision, the cameras see a stereoscopic view of the ball flight. In fact, each individual camera can only record a flat two-dimensional view, but each one is acting like the human eye. They're looking in, if you like, in a stereoscopic manner. We photograph that trajectory, and then what we do... For each separate um, computer file, we digitize the position of the ball with great precision. We take the two files that we've produced, which we've digitized, we combine those with the volume, the experimental volume I showed you a moment ago, and we use a technique called the direct linear transformation that brings the two images together and it restores the three-dimensional coordinates of the ball as it moves along. And I'm showing here uh, an actual um, set of numbers for just one coordinate. It happens to be the vertical coordinate. So here we've ended up with, if you like, a calibrated view in real measurement terms of what the ball is doing in terms of its position as it moves through the air. We still, however, haven't related that to these two important numbers, the drag and spin coefficients. Well, I'm afraid there's no other way, though, in order to get at them than to write the equations of motion down and uh, solve them. Now, they can't be solved um, in closed form, as we say. You can't get exact expressions by solving these equations, but you can do it perfectly acceptable on a computer with any one of today's modern packages. Notice the way that the two coefficients are sprinkled about the equations. This is the equation that ultimately finds X, finds Y, finds Z... And these two numbers, CD and CS, are distributed through the equations. So what do we do? Well, we start off by guessing their values. Make a complete guess. We solve the equations on a computer, and we produce what we could call the model trajectory. Then we compare that with the measured trajectory of a moment ago. And, of course, they don't agree. We go back and we change the value of CD and CS a small amount, and we iterate this process repeatedly on the computer until we get the closest agreement between the model and the measured trajectory. And when we do this, we argue that we must have arrived at the correct values of CD and CS for that particular ball. Now, here's a kind of um, illustration of how the process works. The red line is the trajectory predicted by the model, And to obtain that, I've used a very low value of the drag coefficient, CD. You can see that this ball moves too high and too far because the drag is too small. It doesn't match the trajectory. And so we increase CD by a little bit, and by a little bit more, and by a little bit more, and so on. Until finally we find that a value of CD for this particular ball, for this experiment, hits the spot. Now we're not doing it just for the drag coefficient, This is going on for the spin coefficient, the drag coefficient... ...for each of the three coordinates. So there's a lot of computing involved. What do we end up with? We end up with really rather a good fit between model and experiment in general. And out of that process pops these two numbers. These two numbers which are important in terms of predicting the flight of the ball. Now we can do many things at this stage one of the most um, instructive things is to try to speculate on how difficult it is to kick a free kick in practice. So let's take an example using the model that we've just found. We'll take a, a central free kick 25 metres out and we'll assume that the striker is David Beckham. He can belt the ball at 28 metres per second. There in the dotted line is the trajectory that would be produced if he wanted the ball to cross the goal at the centre point. And to do that, he'd have to start off by kicking it in a direction slightly to the right, so that the swerve would bring it back in. Now, supposing he wanted to tuck the ball just inside the far post, he would not need to deliver it so far to the right in terms of the initial direction of the kick. And the strange thing is, the difference between those two directions, between hitting the centre of the goal and tucking it inside the far post, is only seven degrees now imagine if you had a projector, you looked at 7 degrees on a projector and considered the fact that the striker is doing that, he's detecting that difference or producing that difference simply by his kicking action. If we looked at this same free kick from the side, you can see that the 28-metre free kick beats the wall very comfortably, it enters the net. But if Beckham were to overcook that free kick by just one metre per second, what he would produce is a ball that just cleared the bar. Now, that's a very long-winded way of saying, in fact, that free-kicking with side-spin free-kicking is extraordinarily precise. You might think, and the striker might think, that he or she is aiming at a, a target as wide as a half of the goal on the goal line. It's not so. To hit that target, the striker must deliver the ball through an extremely narrow window. And for the kinds of parameters I've talked about, we're talking about a window, or as we've coined the expression, a letterbox, which is only six ball widths in extent and just over, a little over, a one ball diameter high. Now, this is the kind of target that professional players should be thinking of in terms of kicking a successful side spin free kick. It would be interesting to speculate what's on their mind when they actually walk up to the ball and try to do these things in practice. I said I'd try to just divide a few typical examples into side spin free kicks and top spin free kicks. Here's a wonderful free kick that was taken by the Dutch against um, the Cote d'Ivoire in the 2006 World Cup. We could talk a lot about the politics of this setup. There's a great deal in terms of the politics of the setup of a defensive wall. This is um, Aaron Robin, statuesque. I mean, Aaron Robin's no longer playing at Chelsea, but he looks like um, a code breaker standing, looking there at the ball. Here's the man who'll do the damage. This is Robin van Persie of Arsenal. This is that great um, Dutch midfielder, Koku. He is not behind that wall where he's technically offside because he enjoys standing there. Koku in that free kick has a deliberate role. Anyway, let's play the free kick and see what happens. Van Persie, you may have seen at the weekend, is an extremely accomplished side spin free kicker by kicking the ball with his instep. And if you look at the ball markings as the ball proceeds to goal, you can see that he's achieved almost perfect side spin. Notice, by the way, at the instant of the kick, Koku disappears behind the wall, he's made a gap. ...for Van Persie to aim at. And we'll see that exaggerated in some of the free kicks... ...which I'll show in a moment. Very accomplished free kicker. Here's another free kick. This is Haman of Liverpool of some years ago... uh, ...now playing at Manchester City. And interestingly, um, his nickname is Didi... ...just like his great historic predecessor. um, He strikes the ball too with the outside of his foot. And I mentioned at the start, you can get much more spin but it's extremely difficult to control direction and accuracy. Anyway, um, the politics of the free kick again. This is Sami Hoopier. He's not standing in the wall in that position because he wants to see Haman kick the free kick precisely. Hupia's role is much more sinister. You can see what Hoopia does is to clear a gap for Haman. Haman wants to pass the wall at about waist height, not head height. He wants to swerve it round the wall... And, uh, of course, Hoopie's role is to make that gap. Now, notice this uh, goalkeeper, like I showed at the start, has an extremely good view of this free kick, but he's still beaten. And that's because of the amount of swerve which this kind of kicking action can produce on the ball. And now, finally, uh, the master. This is Beckham's approach. It's a very oblique approach to the ball. And, again, we'll talk a little bit about the politics. This is the old war horse, um, Teddy Sheringham. Sheringham's role standing in that position isn't simply to look at Beckham's technique. Uh, This is Davidas of Greece, um, then playing for Newcastle at that time, and will run the clip and show the execution. Sheringham clears the gap. Beckham delivers the ball through it, but also, if you look very carefully at those ball markings... ...the ball is rotating with an element of topspin. Beckham has bent that spin axis beyond the vertical... ...and he's brought his foot rolling over the ball... ...and made it dip at the end of his flight. As I think I said, and I'll remind you, topspin is important... ...you can hit the ball much harder. Much more difficult for the goalkeeper to make an attempt to at save. And, of course, the Greek goalkeeper didn't make any attempt at all. Now, Beckham's technique, and players like him, is quite special... These are two free kicks. On the right is the free kick we've just seen against Greece. This was taken a year before, a scoring free kick against Manchester City. And you could almost superpose these two images. The action is completely reproducible. And you can see, in fact, the instant of contact. Beckham is rolling his foot up and over the ball in the manner of a kind of topspin drive in tennis and to produce that he needs to approach the ball in a particular way but also to lean at quite an extreme angle to produce enough space really to bring his foot into contact with the ball in this particular way. Now sometimes things do go wrong and this is the young Beckham of a decade ago, this is a free kick against Coventry and we'll just play the clip and show what happens. There isn't sufficient traction between this kind of surface and Beckham's boots to sustain the amount of lean he wants to put into that kick. And in fact, um, you may remember that he failed to score a penalty, which he tried to take in very much the same way against um, Portugal in Euro 2004. He should not really take penalty kicks in the same way that he takes free kicks. Well, I apologise for the very soupy nature of this video, but it, it's very historic and it's very important. Is it possible to bring the lights down a little bit? This is, this is a free kick which was worked out in the 70s. The team on the ball is Coventry and the defenders are Everton. And compared with the kind of pushing and shoving that, that normally goes on in a free kick... These two players, you might see when the video starts to run, these two players kind of mooch about in a very gentlemanly fashion. There's no overt fouling, pushing, whatever that goes on here. There doesn't have to be. But still, this player creates a little gap. The player on the ball is the Coventry player, Willie Carr. And the player who's going to do the damage is a player called Ernie Hunt. Well, let's play the video. Carr flicks the ball into the air as a back heel, and Hunt can come in, and because that ball is above the ground, he can apply as much topspin as he wants. Absolutely as much topspin as he wants. He can kick the ball, and as long as it clears the wall, it will fly incredibly quickly and dip at the end of its flight. Now, what happened as regards this free kick was that the referee awarded the goal. However, the FA and FIFA met and pedantically banned this particular free kick in their delusion. And if you think, you know, this is, this is almost like going back to the 50s, to the Cavendish laboratory where, let's say, Crick and Watson are, are working on the structure of DNA, and someone bustling in saying, now then, lads, no, let's not have any rubbish about this here in molecular biology. Let's get back to dissecting tadpoles. <laughs> you know, and the FA actually banned... This free kick um, their argument was that this player Carr, because he flicked it with his heels, had played the ball twice and strictly you're not allowed to play the ball twice in a, a free kick until a colleague has touched it or an opponent has touched it anyway, it's not, it's not I'm pleased to say, it's not died the death this is Scotland against Uruguay in, in Argentina in the 1986 World Cup This is the rather fiery but very thoughtful character, Gordon Strachan. Much seen for Celtic, prowling up and down the technical area, abusing everybody in sight. A very um, fiery person. This is the former fullback of Liverpool, Steve Nicol. And uh, Nicol is going to be the executioner, and um, he's going to be the feed. So we play the video. And, of course, it doesn't come off. And I found this video... ...amongst a collection of so-called outtakes... ...or howlers, if you like, in football. What, what, what an insult. Here are two players thinking constructively about the game. And the thing that was wrong with this particular free kick... ...was that in terms of making the feed... ...let's run it through to the start again. In terms of making the feed... ...in fact, Strachan should have stood on the ball. He should have stood with his back to the defensive wall... ...blocking this run and played the ball back to nickel. In a top spin drive, with the ball played off the ground, distance is immaterial. Absolutely immaterial. And my belief is that this free kick would have have succeeded had it been played in that way. Now, I've seen it played very infrequently. I think Jamie Redknapp, either when he was still with Spurs or when he'd gone to Liverpool, tried it once again. So it pops up from time to time. It is the absolutely copper-bottomed, guaranteed way of beating a defensive wall. 80% of the people in this room, if they kicked a ball on the volley in the air, would naturally produce topspin. Well, let's move on post-Beckham and let's look at some rather strange effects. This is a player like Beckham who's not playing in international games. It's the Brazilian called um, Juninho Pernambucano. It's not the Juninho who was at uh, Middlesbrough a decade ago. In my opinion, he is a more consummate free-kick taker than Beckham is or was. And uh, I'll play this video stream to start. Now, it's not a free-kick. The ball's hit on the run. And if you play this often enough, and if you look at it uh, as I speak, you might just convince yourself that that ball moves in flight. You can see the ball originally move slightly to the right and then move back to the left as you look at it. Very hard to see because the ball is kicked so quickly. Now, this is the Japanese international goalkeeper, and he's not a fool. He's a very good goalkeeper. And if you look just about glimpse his approach to the ball, there's nothing in the way of his view of the shot, and yet he positions his hands in in, in a location where he's trying to catch the ball where it was, not where it will be and we get a clue as to what's going on if we look at Penebucano kick this ball in slow motion from the side notice that the ball is scarcely rotating if you look at those ball markings he's not kicking um, a spinning free kick for example as Robin Van Persie did a moment ago he's kicked that ball with very little spin at all and perhaps that's the clue here is Cristiano Ronaldo now I think What that ball is doing in the air is very easy to see, and it's very strange. It moves twice in the air. There's no impedance from Fulham's defensive wall, and uh, what that ball is doing when it flies is determined by aerodynamic effects. When I first saw this video stream, I disbelieved it. I believed it might have been accidental and one-off, but Ronaldo in particular seems to be able to produce this kind of free kick uh, as he did when Manchester United played a, a, a European 11, uh, in, not in celebration, but in, in remembrance of the, the uh, Munich disaster. He reproduced exactly the same free kick. And again, this goalkeeper is Niemie. He's not a fool. Niemie is moving to catch the initial flight of the ball, not where the ball eventually arrives. And finally, this is this colleague I have in Japan you can reproduce this under more controlled conditions. And if you look at that ball, it just about reaches the vertex, and then it takes a very smart move to the right. And if you look at the ball markings once more, that ball is scarcely rotating. Now, to understand what might be happening, we need to locate to another sport. Baseball pitchers do throw curve balls, which are entirely equivalent to a swerving free kick, but they throw a vicious delivery called the knuckleball, and they grip the ball in this particular way with their fingernails around the top hemisphere. And they deliberately re- release the ball so that the ball is thrown with very little spin indeed. Now, if what we're seeing in football is equivalent to what happens when a knuckleball is thrown, and in a knuckleball in baseball, the ball does bob about considerably in flight, if, if that's happening... What possibly could be the cause? Well, a baseball is an unusual sports ball. It's got one seam, a very raised, stitched seam, and it's got two panels. And the argument goes as follows. If this is the baseball, a portion of the seam rotates into the airflow, it trips the boundary layer, it causes aerodynamic instability, and the ball is deflected in this direction. But it's rotating slowly, and so another portion of the seam, perhaps in this position, moves into the airflow, we trip the boundary layer again, and then the force changes direction. And so in throwing a knuckleball, it's a consequence of that very, very restricted seam that causes that movement. Well, panels and seams are important. This is the classic hexagon pentagon ball. 32 panels, a very, very high-quality ball indeed. This is the World Cup ball that was bitterly complained about by goalkeepers in 2006. The most high-tech object that's ever been kicked around a football pitch, but it has only 14 panels. And in my view, this ball is closer to the baseball having a restricted panel structure and a restricted scene in terms of its aerodynamic performance when it's kicked with very little spin. And that may be the cause of these peculiar effects that we're seeing in terms of Ronaldo and the kinds of successes who are coming along uh, after Beckham. Well, should FIFA act? They control everything. They control the ball size, its weight, sphericity, its recoil, the fact that it absorbs very little water, but they don't control aerodynamic performance. Now, um, it probably takes a great deal of skill to kick a ball, more skill to kick a ball with no spin, than to kick it with a great deal of spin. But what happens when the ball leaves Ronaldo's foot? There's more to have with the kind of chaos effects in aerodynamics than contrivance on the part of the kicker. So, so far as that kind of free kick goes, I'm firmly with the goalkeepers. I think the goalkeepers are having a tough time in respect of dealing with these unusual effects with this unusual ball. Let me just run through some quick conclusions. Well, I hope I've shown that you can understand free kicks in terms of the basic aerodynamics and that we can model them and study them quite successfully. High skill is required in the action, but footballers, as indeed Didi did not, footballers do not need to understand the basic science. They do what they do because they're skilled athletes and they practice intensively. And finally... Should FIFA introduce an aerodynamic performance standard for footballs? Yes. Emphatically, yes. I don't know about the impending um, Euro 2008 competition, but for the next World Cup, um, FIFA, who are in... I shouldn't say this, perhaps. FIFA, who have a relationship with Adidas, will ask Adidas to make a new World Cup football. It would be entirely possible to build a ball with perfectly acceptable and predictable aerodynamic performance but with such a ball it would not be possible to kick a knuckleball and so goalkeepers then could come back into the family they could stop complaining and they could join the uh, the rest of the football community well I'd like to just acknowledge my colleague David Curwen who's now at the University of Wales Institute in Cardiff and Takeshi Asai whose videos I used um, quite extensively throughout the presentation thank you very much (laughs) indeed (laughs) Okay. <laughs>